Hey y'all, this is Hamza, and I'm super happy we get to hang out for a little bit. Hey guys, welcome to Hanging Out with Hamza. This is Hamza. Today I have a special guest on. He is a close friend, also a mentor, and somebody that I really looked up to for a long time. Um, I've been wanting to have him on for a while, but our schedules have both been pretty hard to align lately. Um, just to give you a brief introduction to him, uh, his name is Dr. Robin Bethel. He is a dentist, entrepreneur, business owner, and family man. Uh, and he's also a connoisseur of good music and good movies. And that's how we kind of got along on that. Um, just to kind of give you a background story before I pass it on to him. Uh, I've brought this up before, but the way I knew Robin was kind of like a clashing of fate. Uh, I found out about Robin before I even got into dental school. I had gotten accepted recently and the girl I was talking to at the time showed me this funny article and she was telling me, you know, one day this could be you. And I looked at the article and it was uh, Austin's sexiest dentist and it was calling this guy McDreamy and all this stuff and I laughed at it and I kind of just kept that article just as like a funny thing to look at. And fast forward a couple years later, one of my close friends, Anne Rebecca, told me that he really wanted to introduce me to this dentist. And so we connected over COVID, started talking, realized that we vibed really well. And then I looked him up online. I was like, this name looks really familiar. And this guy looks familiar too. And I ended up realizing it was the same guy that I saw in that article a couple of years ago. So it's kind of funny how that worked out, but turns out he is still Austin Sexy's dentist. And uh, he's also a great dude. So it's nice to go under his wings. And I feel like it was kind of all kismet the way it all worked out so uh, with that being said i'm going to pass it on to him let him introduce himself and uh we'll go on from there Hamza, that is the sweetest introduction ever you flatter me um i think the way i remember it is Anwarbeck told me that there was a super awesome creative handsome dentist that was a figs model in houston that was moving to austin and i remember um checking you out on social media and thinking how creative your stuff was and I liked your style, liked your uh, music taste. We had the same kind of uh, love for cinematics and um, I, I think it's really incredible you've been able to creatively express yourself Thanks, while man. pursuing a dental profession. I appreciate it. Well, so. I'm glad that we had that mutual respect because I think you and Anurbeck are two major people that have influenced like my decisions to move to Austin and you know the paths I've been taking in my life especially with just like honing in on things I'm good at and trying to be better at them and I think it's one of those things about like how you're always what is it like the five closest people you're with is a representation of who you are so I've always tried to like stick around people like you on Rebecca because I think it not only influences me to be a better person but it shows that you can still be a good person and still be successful while maintaining the sense of humility. So it's been an honor and pleasure getting to know you more and realizing you were the same person that I thought you were when we first met. And uh, yeah, so with this podcast, you know, I know that it's usually about passion projects and things that you love, but I think there's so much more to you beyond that. And I think, you know, we will cover that, but I also want people to kind of get to know you more just like I do and why I really respect and admire you. So I wanted to start off just by kind of letting people know where you come from, like your origin story, like what what you're about and uh, 
how you got into dentistry. Well, that's very cool. And you're so humble, by the way. Thanks, man. Um, origin story. I grew up in California, wanted to be a dentist since I was 10, uh, just because I liked drawing and art and science and it kind of blended the two made it like a public statement to my family when i came back from a trip to thailand that i was going to be a dentist and i kind of stuck with it i saw how my parents lit up when they heard oh he's going to be a doctor and a dentist and i came from my, my dad is a, an engineer construction my mom's a teacher and uh, they they just encouraged it along the way and it was um kind of just one foot in front of the other, you know, you research, what do you do next to become a dentist? And then you do the next step and the next step. And, um, that's, that's what led me down this path. I realized that most dentists don't have a similar story. And, um, the joke in dentistry is, you know, dental schools where people who don't get into med school go, but I, I absolutely am in love with the profession. I think that it is one of my greatest passions. And I, I want to preserve and protect it. And um, moved to Austin after eight different associate positions. I started in uh, San Francisco, moved to Fresno, where I grew up. To uh, I grew up in Clovis, but did a VA hospital residency. Took a job in a, a uh, an office in Fresno, where I learned a lot. But uh, after about four months, um, decided I needed to get away from home and uh, was lured into San Diego. And I worked in three different offices in San Diego. This was at the, kind of the peak of the economic crisis in uh, 2008. And I was doing hygiene. I was working six days a week, uh, barely making ends meet, it felt like. Um, I had, you know, UOPs. Uh, private school and I had tremendous debt. It felt very burdensome to me because of, you know, loan payments and interest. And I feel like I was working really hard to make $100,000 a year living in California. Half that goes to taxes. The other um, went to just cost of living and to uh, paying down school debt. I remember I was dating a girl at the time and she was a teacher. And whenever we got on dates, she had to pay because I was broke. Wow. <laughs> I was so broke. And then uh, one of my best friends uh, from UOPs, his name is Brian Dagoni, um, had connected me with some of his good friends from his class and Yaya Mansour and, and Sam Zarabi. Wow. And uh, they were starting a, a dental office in Texas. They came down for a weekend. We, uh, we all hung out. Uh, I, I'll never forget. Uh, we had a great time. It's Fourth of July. We were partying at the beach and living a good life. And the next morning, yeah, yeah, as we're getting ready to go have breakfast. He's like, "Move to Texas," and I said, "Why?" And he's all, "You'll make three times as much money." And I said, "Sign me up." And so I took my Western Regional Board that year, and um, I moved to Dallas. Worked with uh, Rodeo Dental for three years. Learned a ton. Those guys were. Uh, incredible entrepreneurs, incredible risk takers, and that was something I was naive to. Is just the amount of risk it takes to open a small business, um, and uh, learn as much as I could. Realizing and dreaming the whole time that I wanted to have my own uh, interpretation of what dentistry should be. 
So I was kind of thinking about what my office would look like and when the opportunity came to move and to open my own, I came down for South by Southwest, listened to some good music, went to uh, a Jim James my uh, concert and with one of my best friends in Austin and just like, dude, this is the place I want to be. And um, what so year was that? This is 2000. Um, it had to be 2011. Uh, that was a great year for Austin. Yeah, South by was that was my popping. Yeah, I was in college at that time, and I think that was peak Austin 2011 to th 2013. That era for me was very Austin thing to say. I agree. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've I only been here since 2012. Yeah, man, it was uh, it was magical. Yeah, cool vibe, great creative scene. Um, still had that kind of keep Austin weird. Yeah, thing I think it was the tipping point. It was right when people were realizing it was a place to be, but it wasn't, you know, marginalized or like gentrified just yet. Totally. So, yeah. Yeah, it was <clears throat> really incredible. I remember uh, having a conversation with Sam, just saying like, look, I, I love this company. I'd like to be a partner in it. And at the time they weren't really looking for other partners. And I said, then I got to go. And um, I came down here looking for a spot to open, hired this practice locator consultant. They showed me like a map of Austin and it was pretty saturated then. Mm -hmm. And he's like, these are the places did not go. And um, like in the hub was Anderson Lane, old Austin. There was like 11 dentists within a quarter mile. And I was walking around this space and this like skater dude, uh, realtor was walking by, seeing me peeking windows. And there's a little courtyard garden at the at the village shopping center, which is it was being renovated at the time. And um, I fell in love with it. And I said, sign me up. My consultant's like, why'd you hire me? This is like the worst place to possibly start a dental office. And um, then the next two to three years, I was just buried in uh, like all consumed in making this business work. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you feel was that that uh, was the same time when um... I guess, how was the housing market at that time? Or like, was there a big like fluctuation in the economy or anything that you were worried about at that time? Or was that a pretty good time to buy practices? Texas seemed to be pretty good. Then. Yeah. Um, you know, by today's standards, yeah, it was a great time. Yeah. I mean, it, it's only gotten harder. Right. For dentists to open office in Austin and most big cities in Texas. It was kind of, um, never forget when I moved here, in 2009, 10, which Texas, there was like, it was like the gold rush. Mm. Like so many dentists were leaving West Coast to yeah. come to Texas. Which is funny because same thing's happening now, but in other fields. So it's kind of just a reverberation of that. But yeah, um, yeah, because I was, I was going to ask that because I was thinking, you know, my next question was what challenges do you see now as a practice owner versus what you went through? Do you feel like it's kind of one of those things where history just tends to repeat itself or do you feel like the challenges now are a lot tougher than they were back then? Cause sometimes, you know, question. we always say like, Oh, times are so much better back then, but our parents said that. And then our grandparents said that. So I yeah. feel like it constantly happens, but is that the same thing with dentistry? Yeah. Objectively, I think that it is harder now than it was then. You know, subjectively, of course. I mean, I remember 2012 being so anxious. Yeah. Because, you know, the city of Austin's really, really bad at permitting and yep. really, really bad about business development, especially small business development. 
And my project was supposed to be a six month long tenant improvement. It was a shell space. Ended up taking a year and a half. That was your first one. First one. Wow. And just to give you guys a backstory, he's currently developing his, which, what number is this one? We're trying to get our fifth office open now. Okay, and you're still dealing with permitting issues. Yes. Except worse this time. Around. It's worse this time. Yeah, okay. Well, back then it was bad, and just to put things in perspective, I mean, the rent price on our first was $17 per square foot and $3 triple net. The rent price of the new one we're trying to build is $35 per square foot and $15 triple net. And triple net's really just property taxes for the most part. Yeah. I mean, that's a 5x increase in the last decade. Do you feel like the return balances out in terms of like the, the growth of the practice over time as opposed to back then? Or do you feel like the same with the, well, you know, the amount of population that's grown in Austin in the last couple of years? You know, I didn't have an issue with patients back then. I mean, it was pretty much, I mean, thanks to that article you quoted and yeah. several other marketing things that I did. We were really busy in the first year. I mean, I was at capacity, yeah. you know, by myself, had to hire an associate. Okay. Um, I, I still think that's the truth now. The problem is the numbers aren't making sense as much. I mean, to have a business that ran at a 25 or 30% margin back then uh, was achievable. But um, with the increased costs of everything, including employees and material costs and, you know, dental insurance is basically stagnated. They haven't increased reimbursements that margin's really tight. Mm -hmm. So when you write out like a pro forma of how your business will do now, that's, the math's different. Yeah, Those risks are certainly higher. Yeah, and we've talked about this because that's my next step in my dental career. And, you know, I'm kind of at the point where you were when you moved to Texas. And I asked you these questions. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of dental students and associates that are listening to this that are probably curious about their steps going into it. And you know, if you were to kind of give them any advice right now, going into practice ownership, is there anything that you think you wish you knew not only back then when you were first doing it, but even now with what you've learned over time? Yeah, there's definitely, man, you learn so much when you're doing it. Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say is in your first years, it's about experience and absorbing information, becoming good at dentistry itself. Uh, nowadays, the most successful offices are smaller and niche. You know, Forrest Family, my first office was very broad in general. It was in network insurance. I wanted to see blue collar people like my parents were. You know, when I grew up, I wasn't high in cosmetic. Um, it was just, just do as much dentistry as you can and serve your patient population. Um, Nowadays, you know, you see the practices that are super successful now, they're, they're more niche. You know, they're, they're all in cosmetic or implants or, um, you know, there's all these white spaces that exist within our profession. Um, those ones are the ones that are seeing the most growth. Do you still feel like um, corporate dentistry is taking over private or do you feel like there's been a nice kind of separation between the two? Because I feel like it's kind of happened with the public market too where customers are still are now focusing more on like i think in austin it's more common where people want to see like independently made products or they want to mm -hmm. you know support those kinds of brands um whereas i feel like with dentistry we've had that 
you know, that separation now between corporate and private, do you feel like the corporate is still taking over or there's been a nice kind of divide between the two? Corporate has advantages now that are much greater than 2012. I mean, to compete against corporate right now and marketing budget, cost of supplies, in insurance negotiations and things, they are at a significant advantage over small mom and pa. I mean, it's, it's staggering. You haven't noticed patients kind of being educated about this and wanting to go the other route. Cause I feel like, I think the one thing that's been helpful in educating patients is that corporate while having all those advantages when it comes to quality dentistry has been very lacking. And that's something we've always had an advantage over. Yeah. Well, this is a people job. It's a people yeah. profession. People it's, you know, I've heard the comparison that dentistry is going to be like pharmacology and, you know, optometry no, and you know, optometry. Yeah. It's so different though. Yeah. I mean, I don't, people are comfortable going to HEB and Walgreens for their pharmacy, Yeah, but they want to trust the dentist. Their hands are in their mouths. It's a super vulnerable position. I think we are somewhat insulated from the consolidation of medicine that we're seeing in other fields. Um, but it, it is happening. Yeah. And I think to your question about is it, you know, corporate taking over, um, hey, I mean, I'm a single doc owner. I have partners. They're all dentists, but we're a corporation. Mm -hmm. We have five offices. We have 14 associates in our group. Um, if you've seen one corporate office, you've seen one corporate office. They're all very different. There are Castle Dental, which gets the worst rep in, I think, Austin and in the Texas area. And they're a big corporate in Aspen and some of the other ones. But you could find great providers in those groups. And you right. could be a patient and have a great experience at Aspen. Yeah. Or you can have a terrible one. And the likelihood is that that dentist that you loved at Aspen isn't going to be there in three or four years. Yeah. It's a stepping stone. Right. Um, it the hard thing for corporate is going to be retaining good people, mm -hmm. and that that's where the struggle lies. And I think the hand is stacked for corporate now, just because of how expensive it is in dentistry, how expensive debt is. It's harder and harder for dentists to do what I did and branch out and open their own so corporate will retain more doctors. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I think like the the margin of failure is a lot higher for private practices now. I mean, if corporate fails in one office, they have enough equity or income to just start another one or move to a different. I mean, that's Pacific Dental's whole kind of philosophy based on what I've noticed is they can just keep opening offices like Starbucks and it doesn't affect them half yeah. as bad as it would an independent owner from doing something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the big thing is the, the capital. Yeah. I mean, if you're deploying private equity capital, then it's a very different algorithm through mm -hmm. your head. I mean, you have to deploy the money. They're, they're comfortable with some of their offices being losses. Mm -hmm. If you're privately owned and you're using your own capital or bank debt, yeah. You know, it's a much higher risk. You're, you're much higher risk, yeah. and you're not going to let one. You're not going to let one fail. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, yeah, all these things are kind of hidden from the consumer's eye. Yeah. Well, it goes into my. So when you talked about having a niche market and something that you've really kind of excelled at, I think you have two markets that I've really noticed. With obviously, um, Dr. Robin has a um, 
private office called Blue Door, and that one's focused more on cosmetics. And then you also have Invisalign, which is a big strength of your offices. So how did you kind of veer onto that path and focus on Invisalign? Was there something that drew you to it, or did you just kind of fall into it by chance? Well, I loved orthodontics early on. Okay. So there was that passion. I, you know, Brian Dagoni, who was the dentist that led me to Texas, is an orthodontist. The, the dental school I went to is named after Dagoni. Um, my orthodontist growing up was fantastic, hugely influenced my decisions to become a dentist. And um, I've always been drawn to it. But really, it was the, my patients and in caring for my patients in Austin, um, I had to offer that. Yeah. And Austin is a unique market. I mean, when I was working for Rodeo, I was seeing populations that had high caries, high cavity risks, gum disease, things like that. And you come to Austin, it's a younger uh, demographic, a lot of young families, even up in central Austin where our office was located. You know, these are successful people who had access to health care. They weren't, didn't have cavities. I mean, they didn't have gum disease. What they had was functional disease. They had bite problems, things that are associated with stress, clenching, psycho-emotional issues that translate to teeth. So I was seeing a lot of this damage that was done, cracking broken teeth, crowding, misalignment, um, even airway stuff, TMD stuff. <clears throat> and I didn't know how to treat it. And so Invisalign opened a door for me to correct some minor adult uh, orthodontic problems and and it took off yeah I mean it was like this is early Invisalign when it was just starting out right so or had it well, been around for a while at the time yeah Invisalign's been around since the 90 late like 2000 era okay I was trained by Robert Boyd at Pacific it was an elective when I was there so I, I had been certified and Invisalign used to require certification in order to use Invisalign okay um, when I moved to Austin I hadn't used it when I was at Rodeo and it would lapse. So you had to recertify every two years and it was like a $2,000 investment. Mm -hmm. And I remember Cliff is a good friend of mine now, still one of the top reps for Invisalign and he's a territory manager for the special markets. At the time, he was trying to get me to start using Invisalign, but he's like, you got to pay for this course. And I like shut the door in his face and I went and invested. I, I put some capital in clear correct. Uh, when Pumphrey's owned it, owned it, it was their manufacturing in Round Rock. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot of the aligner fundamentals using ClearCorrect for two years. Um, then they got bought by Strawman, and it wasn't until 2016 that they dropped that requirement. And Cliff came back to my office, and he's like, "Did you not have to take the certification again?" <laughs> like they they dropped it, and then I started using Invisalign again. It's just a it's a better quality product and right. patients recognize the brand. Um, so I, I switched back to Invisalign and it's been off to the races since then. And I've really uh, loved learning. It's one of those things, the more you get into it, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the few fascinating things I find about you is like on top of being you know, a great person or anything, you are highly regarded in the dental world with Invisalign, especially. And you don't really like, like he hasn't mentioned it yet, guys, but he's, you know, his name is very reputable in the Invisalign community. People have taken his courses and learned a lot from him. And I think um, that's something that's, you know, 
really admirable and I love your passion for it too. You know, I, I was very curious about it and I've learned a lot from you when I was using Invisalign to treat patients. And, uh, yeah, it's just cool because I think it's goes down to this podcast. The best way to learn about something is from people that are passionate about it. And I think you've been very passionate about Invisalign since you started off with it. And it shows in just the way you talk about it and the way you treat patients with it. So, um, yeah, that is amazing. And then that also goes into Blue Door. How did you start that and what made you want to kind of transition to cosmetic dentistry with that? Well, it's mostly, mostly I just needed to get out of insurance contracts and insurances like restrictions uh, in order to do all the things that I was learning about. Um, people don't realize, but insurance contracts restrict doctors tremendously and what they're allowed to do. Yeah. Uh, and there's contracts that, re, you know, require certain fees. You can't use certain labs. It wouldn't make sense for, you know, Invisalign. It's a very expensive product to use as a doctor um, if your insurance doesn't allow it. Yeah. And so I, Blue Door was a way for me to break free of those restraints. And um, so I took course training and uh, from 2018 to 2021. I ended up graduating, loved it, learned a ton about functional dentistry periodontics um and and wanted to apply some of these things use some of the best labs in the world for cosmetic dentistry um and the invisalign part you know it's we use it at forest family and we use it at blue door it, it really isn't any different but um we wanted to be able to offer discerning clientele a upgraded option right so kind of more of a boutique luxury yeah. type office it's yeah. it's boutique uh, it's freeing. It keeps me um, doing what I love, mm -hmm. which is dentistry. Yeah. And um, you're good. You're good. I always forget to mention that I can cut this part out. It's real life. You don't have to edit it out. Mm -hmm. No big deal. But Blue Door is really fun. Now, I want to give it the caveat Blue Door is not nearly as profitable and, um, you know, good business as Forrest family. It's more of like your passion project. Like you knew there was going to be risks involved in it, but totally. it's something you wanted to do. Yeah. And, and Forrest family without Forrest family, I couldn't do blue door. Right. And it's, it's way more niche and, um, I love it. It's growing. It's slow growing. It's yeah. not like Forrest family where it was like within the first year, fully busy and we're three years into it. And we have, uh, some Maven clients that see these patients are like, people I've known for years or connections through Austin that they really want that exclusive experience. And yeah, the, the best thing I've seen in it is your kind of like full reconstructive smiles you've done for people like starting from, you know, from them needing like complete smile transformations and, you know, correcting their, not only their smile, but their bite and their occlusion and everything. And it's been pretty incredible to see. And, um, you've told me about the Coist course. It's definitely something I'd want to look into considering all that. Um, but yeah, if anybody's interested, um, definitely look into his Blue Door. And have you posted any of your photos for your small transformations through oh, yeah. Blue Door? Yeah. Uh, Blue Door Instagram. Okay. Um, it, it, it's comprehensive. I mean, we do full mouth rehabilitation. Yeah. We do TMJ uh, assessments. We, I mean, we work with it's really cool because as I've taught for Invisalign, my network's expanded and I have relationships with some of the best in each field. Yeah. And we bring it all together there. And um, 
it's really really fun and exciting to give people excellence with no compromises yeah i, I don't think uh, the general public is aware that cosmetic dentistry while it is mostly cosmetic there's a lot of functional involvement behind it and you yeah. you've taught me this and i've learned the hard way a lot where you can't just give a patient a set of veneers or a you know a com like completely pretty smile without assessing the macro of everything and how they bite how they sleep at night like do they grind like there's so much more involved in the process instead of just sticking on some veneers and i think that's another misfortune that we face as dentists is a lot of dentists do that without looking at the macro and that leads to patients having bad outcomes and then either hating dentists more as a result mm -hmm. or just getting jaded by the entire system of it um, so that's another thing like I really admire is you've taught me how to look at the bigger picture before focusing on the more finite details of cosmetic dentistry. Um, yeah, I would say just to add to that, that there are, there's a huge lack of it in Austin. Austin's cosmetic scene is like as big of a metropolitan city as we are. We don't have it. Yeah. You know, if you want great cosmetics, uh, you go to L.A., New York, Miami, but why not Austin? There are people who are trying to do it, but as a critic of our profession, it's just subpar. Yeah. Um, the most important thing, though, I can say is that dentists who are failing at their cosmetic dentistry are failing at it because they don't know how to listen to patients. They don't know how to assess their risks. They, they see someone say, I want veneers, and they'll do everything they can to get them veneers without looking at the the human aspects behind it. Yeah. The, you know, do the veneers, do they look good with their face? Are they doing a dental facial analysis and picking something that flows with them? Are they checking their risks for perio, their risks for biomechanical acid erosion? Are they picking the right materials for that patient? And there are many materials, and each one's, you know, maybe better for it different circumstances and the listening aspect the, the law of instruments is you know if you're a carpenter everything and you have a hammer everything looks like a nail and what that's what i see in cosmetics in austin yeah. it's like someone yeah, goes hard on it there's like everybody gets like piano key white yeah. teeth i think the, the problem is and i'm guilty of it too in the beginning is like you hear veneers and you just think dollar signs and you just immediately want to go to that process because it's yeah it is a fun process to you know do the veneers and see start to end but yeah like you know like you said you you have to really like take a step back and have maybe even multiple appointments where you're figuring out what their needs are before jumping into it because the patient doesn't know what they need they don't know that they you know they don't self-assess until you ask them the questions that are necessary for that yeah and um yeah i'll say the best thing i learned in coice was something called a dental history form and it's a risk-based approach to dentistry where the patients tell you what their risks are before you even meet them and then when they come in you curate the appointment around that and they tell you what they want i think um that changed my world yeah I mean, especially it's we do it at forest family and we do it at blue door but um Forest family, when you take a patient in, nobody, especially an adult that's successful, lives in North Austin, doesn't want to be lectured, you know, about what their diet looks like, mm -hmm. you know. But if they tell you, hey, I, I have holes in my teeth, or I have acid erosion, or I have sleep problems, or I don't feel good about the way my teeth look, then you can have a conversation about it. Yeah. 
And I think that 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 opened my mind up to, you know, more comprehensive care and doing things for people based on what they tell you right. instead of me telling you what you need yeah. or law of instruments. Just, you know, you're another piece of wood that I'm going to hammer a nail into. Yeah. Know? So what do you feel like set you apart when you first initially started out at Forest Family? Like you saw the market, you got your practice and you were thinking, okay, how can I set myself apart from the standard dentist? Yeah, yeah honestly speaking, um, it was the TV on the ceiling. Okay. It was such a silly thing at the yeah. time. Now you can't, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. No office doesn't have TVs on the ceiling yeah. now. But I was like the first one to do that. We got Yelp reviews is the, is the peak Yelp era. We had this patient, <clears throat> Kelly, and um, she was like a Yelp maven. Man, she was queen of Yelp. And she came in and she wrote us a Yelp review. And I remember you could see the analytics. Like that Yelp review got like 10,000 views on it. Wow. And so we had all these Yelpers coming in. And we were giving them this great experience that they hadn't seen before. Um, that was what the turning point was. And at that point, I'm still learning. You yeah. know, I'm like, I didn't know, I wasn't taking coice. I wasn't at nearly as good at Invisalign as I am now. I wasn't nearly as good as restorative dentistry as I am now. But patients were, because they liked the atmosphere and they, we were called like the most aggressively hipster practice <laughs> in Austin. Probably, I don't know. It was so, it was like designed after a Wes Anderson theme. Yeah. Like it was so hipster. We I'm looked, also going to add in that the, Practice is located on West Anderson Lane. Yeah. And it's right next to an Alamo Draft House, which is like, you know, an Austin staple for like great cinema. Yeah. And if you walk into his practice, like he said, it's it does look like a Wes Anderson movie. It's got, you know, the the palette is all matching the green and everything. And then he's got yeah, he's just got a beautiful practice. And I feel like it's also very um rustic like it just feels very like lived in it doesn't yeah. feel like a hospital setting where it's like whites everywhere and everything's pristine and i and there's a lot of wood and a lot of natural yeah stuff in there and i've i really like that and the location too is very hidden but it's cozy in a way it's like it feels like it's been there forever totally and i think that added to the quality of that place it that, and that's what i was feeling when i was there i wanted something that felt you know like an expression of my passions right and um, it it really Austin accepted that well. I don't think it would have succeeded in Dallas. No, or um, Houston. Like coming from Houston, I know that that would have probably failed because it would have felt too Indian hipster and out there for people. Yeah, it it it. I caught lightning in a bottle. It was exactly it worked exactly where it was. Yeah, and it, I don't think it could have worked anywhere else. But it was super hipster. I mean, it was me. Yeah, it was like I love you know, craft things yeah. and it was made by my friends, reclaimed wood furniture. It was very ecologically focused and had art that I had done. I drew these like forest animals. It yeah. was like fantastic Mr. Fox yeah. meets a dentist office. Yeah. And you like, even with... carried over to Blue Door because the door, his actual door to enter the office is a blue door and it's a rustic type handmade handcrafted door made by your friend right yeah um and what was the story behind that did you tell him exactly what you wanted like did you give him kind of inspiration of what you wanted it to be oh no i let sean do what he wants so sean i give him a direction like hey i need a i need a counter and he made the other stuff before that yeah okay yeah sean um shout out to sean springer is a wood artist and i met him in dallas when I moved to Dallas, there wasn't a huge indie scene, but by my second year living there, I found this like art niche scene, uh, Bishop Arts District and Knox Henderson. 
and there was this little shop called We Are 1976, and it was like all this handmade stuff. And they did like have flyers. Hey, we're having an event next week. And one one week I was in there buying random knickknacks and records or something crazy. And um, they Sean was displaying this couch he made by hand, and it's like Danish style design. He was standing by it. He's just like. Um, like lean yogi looking dude with like long hair and he's got tattoos of like it's exactly what you'd expect from a yeah it, wood it, designer. and i remember talking to him and he was just so soft-spoken he's like hey come out to my uh my little shack where i make all this stuff and i went out and watched him and like picture this guy right so he's covered in tattoos of woodworking equipment he's like just loves he's, his whole passion is that's awesome stuff he was like living in a shack that he had maintained and redid that had furniture he made, eating in chopsticks and bowls that he made. It was like, it was very like romantic to see this guy's yeah. love for his craft. It's not how often you meet people like that too. Like people yeah. that have that skill, like handcrafting is not a very common thing you come across anymore. Yeah. And he, he let me like design or ha have some say in the design. And we sat and drew pictures together and he let me like work some of his saws and some of his planning machines. And, uh, he's done a part of every one of our offices. That's beautiful. So it's, it's, you know, I love our the partnership partnership right. and, um, yeah, I think that's like also beautiful. Cause I feel like it's such a dichotomy between what dentistry is and what that is because dentistry is very like, metal silver like a lot of just like industrial things and then yeah. you have this like like you know handcrafted um handmade element to it which is completely different so yeah it's, it's a cool warm yeah it's yeah. beautiful but um yeah i mean going on from that i think you know you, with you being a business owner and with me wanting to be one this is more of a selfish question but how did you handle going from being an associate to a boss and handling people. I know that's always, you've mentioned this to me before that that's one of your biggest challenges you face. And, um, that also goes into another question of how do you hire an associate and what do you look for in associates, you know, for people listening to this and wanting to know how they can be the best associate for someone or how they can look for good associates in the future. It's a complex question. Um, man. So, a, I'm not the best at evaluating people. And um, my whole philosophy, I adapted from uh, some podcasts, Gary Vaynerchuk, and it's, you know, hire fast, fire faster, promote fastest. And basically, you don't know somebody when you interview them. Yeah. They're putting their best face on. Right. You really get to know people in six months. Um, how do I find good associates and how do I go from associate to owner? Just by jumping in. I mean, just like podcasting, man, it's like you've been doing podcasting now a little bit. Every time you do it, you learn a little bit more. Yeah, you I mean. You make some mistakes. You make some failures. It's just consistency, right? And that goes to everything. So yeah. You just It's more about doing it rather than perfecting it. Yep. Because that happens over time. And, you know, back in the early days, how did I evaluate an associate? I may have looked at their resume and asked them, like, what procedures do you like to do? And, um get a vibe and an interaction. And today it's a very different algorithm. I mean, it's, it's evolved over the years, but the big variable for success in an associate dentist is 
Are they compassionate, empathetic people? Are they going to listen to their patients and engage? Because if they aren't, there goes my reputation. I mean, if they come in and they're cold and they lecture people or, you know, they just don't engage well, the industry is terrifying. People leave and they feel that and they mm -hmm. perceive our patients are very perceptive of those things. And so if I get that vibe that you're kind of, you know, um, not a compassionate person, uh, it's not a good fit. Yeah. You also have to have the skills, you know, and, and I think any, if you've gotten through dental school, which is a very hard process, you can learn to do any dental procedure. Right. When you pass your boards, that can be taught. And so for me, the way I value my associates right now is, are you generating customer satisfaction? Are, are patients happy with you? And are you productive? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you start, a new associate's probably not going to be productive. It's a pretty steep learning curve with yeah. a new office. But in six months, I've got to see that you're able to treat patients in a way that the business, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I respect your, like, hire fast, fire faster. But do you feel like that affects you financially, too? Because it's oh, a lot yeah. of money to do the training initially yeah. and then to do that. So, you know, that concept, while, like, a good concept, it seems like a very financially heavy burden it is but what's worse i mean you like you drag people, them out yeah you yeah. drag it on and it's That's just gonna true. hurt you later yeah um but you don't think it would be cheaper to like um you know suss them out for a longer period of time you just don't have the time for that a, you're saying you're in a constant sus yeah i mean it's it's constantly i mean i have people for five years and then after five years it's like man this relationship's not working anymore yeah people grow bitter or they maybe they had aspirations to do something or there's personal things you know things change yeah. so i'm not romantic about the idea that i'm a good people developer yeah it's it's you're just constantly doing your best and you have to give yourself a lot of grace yeah and i don't believe anybody from being on there are people who are better at developing people than others but no one's perfect at it. Yeah. There's no perfect mentor leader of patient. And just as a segue here, my mentorship, it's like I catch you in passing and we talk about a case. You know, it's not a structured didactic program where I require people to attend like lectures on every Wednesday night. Yeah. It, there's no system to it. It's yeah. just a constant thing you're always doing. Yeah. Training and teaching and yeah, I mean, I even with our relationship, which like just again to give you guys more backstory to us, like for a long time I wanted to work for Robin and I wanted to be one of his associates. And he straight up told me, he's like, I don't want you as an associate. And at first I kind of was like, oh, that, that hurts a bit. But then, you know, he delved further into like the concept, like, no, like I like you too much and I like our relationship. And, you know, for you to become my associate means you're under my like mentorship as an employee and I don't want our relationship to have that. And I really admired that because I think he, you know, it was, it sounded painful at the moment, but like, I think the meaning and the, the, the deeper like um, emphasis he had on like our relationship was what really made me admire his decision in that regard. And I'm glad I went that route and instead went, you know, worked for other people because I felt like then I was able to keep him not only as a mentor and a friend, but I was able to learn the the dental parts without needing to feel like I was under his like bias as being an employee. And that's been nice too.
Thank you. I want to dive into that a little bit. Yeah, go for it. I think this is an interesting subject. Yeah, I mean, we have all the time. We, um, yeah, you, you did show interest in working with me at the time when you're moving from Houston to Austin. But um, a couple things. I mean, number one, timing is everything. And you would be a great associate of Forrest family. I know that. It wasn't so much that I thought you wouldn't be a good fit. It was timing was part of it. Right. Um, I also think that, you know, dual relationships are terrifying to me. Yeah, you I know? agree. Being a friend and a boss is very hard to be at the same time. Now, I genuinely have a lot of love for all of my associates, but they were employees first, mm -hmm. and I have an obligation to protect in, in their profession, their livelihood. Right. That's my primary thing. Right. Whereas if you're a friend with somebody first, then your primary thing is probably to protect and maintain that relationship. Right. There's a there's something there and it, it, it can get messy. Yeah, I agree. And I've learned that the hard way too. Um, and I'm glad you set that boundary from the start. I felt like it was like an important thing you said from the start. And it also gave me more motivation to do other things and know that I didn't have like a fallback in that regard. And it's been great because I've learned so many lessons in other fields. Like, you know, I've worked at another office and realized it wasn't a fit for me and I'm at a different office. And if I didn't do that, then I wouldn't have learned these important lessons that will help That's me right. in ownership. And remember I had eight jobs before I opened for yeah. family. So I know that that process takes time. I don't want to be your first job. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be your second job. Yeah. I want to be, I want to be partners in a, in a entrepreneurial thing with you or, you know, we, you know what you want. Yeah. And I think that's more exciting. You also were working your first job with somebody I knew and respected in the community. I wasn't going to like, yeah, you know, take you from another friend. Yeah. Um, there was that aspect too, but it, it is an, a unique situation. You know, like when I moved to Austin, I literally had two friends mm -hmm. and I knew nobody here. So everybody was a stranger. And, yeah. And um, that made, hiring and, and running my workforce better. Right. You know, how do you feel like your relationships in dentistry have kind of developed? Like, do you feel like a lot of your close friends are dentists or do you feel like you try to set boundaries between your personal friendships? Like ours is unique, I think in the aspect that, yeah, every now and then we do talk about dentistry, but for the most part, I love talking about movies and music with you too. Mm -hmm. And, um, I feel like, do you, do you feel like you try to set that boundary just because your your life is a, revolved no, around it? I don't think about it. You think you it's like a vibe with somebody. Yes, yeah. it's, it's it. It's it's look for most people. It's hard to find connections with people. Period. Yeah, you know. And if you have something you connect with somebody on, why would you say, "Oh, you're you're not a dentist, or you are a dentist"? Yeah, just, yeah. I I don't think about it. My time in 2023 is so capitalized by yeah. first my family. That's my highest priority and then my profession so a lot of my friends are dentists i mean i would say that my social outlets are with you and you know with other dentists in austin or i go travel to speak for invisalign and i see these faces that we see all the time and that's, right that was, those are my friends yeah now. okay it just it just happened to be that way yeah because i've had some friends that are like ah, oh, i just like get so tired of hanging out with dentists because all we do is talk about dentistry and i'm like yeah but like you know that's like a connection you share too and it yeah it just adds another layer to that friendship that you know hopefully you have other layers to it but it is uh 
it is something that you can't avoid once you become a dentist. That's true. You're just surrounded by them. I feel bad for my wife because <laughs> yeah. she's got to like listen to teeth. Right? Yeah. If I have a chance to have friends over, it's like, I mean, I have a, I have a few non-dentist friends, but it's it's. I mean, I spend most of my time with dentists. Yeah, and Amy's awesome. So I think she's, you know, she's one in a few. So she handles yeah. it really well. Yeah, just relationship tip. Like, you you do have to restrain, you know, refrain from teeth talk. Yeah. When you're, you it's know. not a very sexy subject as it is, so. No. And it's such a nerdy niche thing. I mean, yeah. we're talking about bond strengths and different, you know. You're just gonna, yeah, you know, well, alienate your other friends. Yeah, I remember we've done that a couple of times in front of her, and then I've like take a step back, but she's so used to it, and she's very accommodating of it and understanding, so it's great. Yeah, she's she's great. She's um, used to it but with that being said, I guess I'll carry that over to like your personal passions. Like, I know obviously Forrest family has been very much influenced by movies like Wes Anderson, but what do you what would you say is like your identifying passion since that is the concept of this podcast do you feel like there's something that's really influenced you as a person and like you said music um is there anything mm -hmm. particular that you really want to talk about or focus on i learned a lot about new music from i love your instagram handle i like sometimes a song comes on i haven't heard that before thanks man but um no music was one of my i mean music and art and film so bad. I mean, that's where I spent my free time was yeah. in, you know, art places and going to concerts and stuff. That's what brought me to Austin. And over the years, I mean, I wish I could do that kind of stuff. But do you feel like um, outside of dentistry, you would have gone anything artistic in that regard? Like, did you ever consider going the movie route or anything? Because you got the looks for an actor role. You could have done that. <laughs> You could have. So it's a funny story. I I thought about it. You know what my segue into that was going to be? What? I lived in uh, San Diego, and I. I have I, a question to follow up with that. So let me see what you're going to say. Okay, then I have some secret footage. But I I uh, I applied to be on The Bachelor. Oh, nice! <laughs> and I made it to like their final uh, segments. I was devastated. I didn't get selected. I made it to the final twenty-five. What, what was the deciding factor? Did they tell you? You know, I so one of the producers um, in the process. It's like a six month process. They yeah. vet you, and there's blood and urine, like an 800 piece question psych evaluation. I mean, it was like very. I got I got offered to be on it during COVID, and they that would have been amazing. Yeah, but it was like during COVID, and they were like, not to take away from anything, but they basically did the same thing. They were like vetting me, and I was like. Initially, they reached out through Instagram, and I was like, yeah, sure. And then, like you said, there was like, I did five calls. And after that, they're like, okay, so you're going to be in this mansion with like all these other guys for like this amount of time. You can't go anywhere else. You can't do anything else. And it sounded awful to me. I was like, I don't want to do that. Dude. And uh, yeah, so go on. Sorry to interrupt with I, that. Like, I know you well. I think that when I, and I, I was a fan of the show for many years. I haven't watched the last few seasons, but. Um, man, they they have the ability to really break you down. Yeah, and you're such an empathetic person. I think that you would have gotten steamrolled. Oh, I, I, brutal. I told my friends I was like, I'd probably be knocked out by the first episode because a I would be like the guy in the corner, not really like 
you know, yeah. being the bro or like everybody starts taking their shirts off and I'd be like, I'm going to go. Whatever, dude, you're super rich. <laughs> no, so she was like, they'd ask questions like, you know, um, like, do you feel like when you walk in a room, like your presence is known and stuff? I was like, probably not. That's like my brother's job. But um, I think that's like, you know, I didn't get this sixth or seventh interview after that kind of stuff because I basically told them I was like pretty introverted. Yeah. And also they were like, you know, are you willing to come out for this couple of months and i was like well i'm a dentist so that's a lot of my time to take off and also yeah. my mom was staying with me at the time in houston and i was like i don't think i feel comfortable just leaving her alone and also just being in a mansion with like all this testosterone trying to vie for like this woman yeah that i don't even know i've never met yeah probably don't even know if i'll even be attracted and yeah, so a lot of my friends were like, "Yeah, you know, but it's great marketing. Like, you'll get so many." That's what I after thought that. too. Yeah, and oh, I man. thought about it, but I was like, "Am I really willing to like sell my soul for like a higher clientele of patients?" I don't think you would have sold your soul. I just think that you would have like been knocked out by first episode. No, I mean the girl could have loved you. Yeah, you're super handsome. Well, that's good. If you had something in common, you just who's the girl? Well, thankfully, <clears throat> that was the season that she picked the guy on the first episode, so they had oh, to like yeah. kind of change all this stuff so i'm like overall i think it was a blessing in disguise but it was nice to like experience that but anyways i'm taking away from your bachelor no I, I i want to talk about you potential bachelor you would have been a we'd great to, bachelor we'd have to sit and coach you on strategy because i think that like i know so this is what they want they they, they ask these questions to fill an archetype right Right, and they want to get a room full of archetypes. That's that are true. Like make the best TV. To be honest, I haven't seen a full season of The Bachelor. Like I've dated so many people that watch it, and I've yeah. somehow always found a good excuse to avoid that situation. It's cheesy, but I think but... it's good. Like it's great entertainment. They know exactly. They've had it down to a formula. So you're right. I never thought about the archetype thing. It's it makes so much sense. TV. Yeah. Yeah, you get these people, and you can curate it. You like psychologically know you get this person's oil and this person's water. And yeah, you put them in the room. room. You're make great yeah, it's all down to a science. It's down to a science. Um, I knew that. I didn't know what I was getting into. I was very naive about the process, yeah. but I thought it was going to give me exposure, maybe give me to Hollywood. Right. I was in San Diego. I'm going to move to L.A. Like you know, I remember thinking all these things, and when I went on this date with the producer, she's like. It's a blessing you didn't get on. And she didn't tell me why, but I was like, they wanted me to fill an uh, archetype. What was the archetype? Um, <clears throat> probably a sensitive dude. Yeah. And the sensitive dude... They get they, they steamrolled. Get them, they, they just end up crying on <laughs> some rock for TV. Yeah. And then you're known forever as yeah. the, the dentist that, you know... And at that period of time, I don't think sensitive guys were what they are seen as now. You know, I think at that time it would have been more of like a joke against you well it would have been hard to deal with because i you know i am a sensitive guy but i'm yeah. also like i'm having you know now i have to protect and provide for a family yeah so my likes and interests have changed drastically right. since that responsibility but, yeah um yeah back then i was just this single nice guy and i think that uh you know american public gets to decide how to edit you it gets to decide but I would have hated to expose myself emotionally on public TV. Yeah. And be typecast. By it is. It's I said. people always like misjudge me because of my social media, because I do love, you know, sharing the things I share and I'm pretty outspoken on there. But yeah. for the most part, when you've met me, like I'm pretty quiet and like reserved in most situations. And like just being on a show like that just terrifies me because I know you have to kind of 
kind of blow yourself up in a way, like show more of who you can yeah. be. And I think that's a lot. And uh, yeah, it's pretty overwhelming to think of. So I'm glad we both went the different path. I think we ended up on a better path overall. I think that you have a really big opportunity in your artistic, like your creative expression, you know, bachelor would have been bad. Maybe unless you have put on a persona that wasn't you. Yeah. I mean, you weren't authentic. There's, there's always, you know, stuff that could have come out of that, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at now. And uh, I love this. Yeah. Podcasting lets you have conversations for hours. And yeah, it's been incredible. And it's definitely been a selfish endeavor. Like just to be able to like, you know, you're a busy guy and you've mentioned it before. Like even with the mentorship and friendship we have, I have to really like, I almost like apologize to Robin once a week. Cause I'm like, sorry for blowing up your phone again. Cause I'm like constantly like trying to figure out a time to hang out and talk with him. Cause I always have these ideas and these, um, like I'm constantly sending him stuff. I'm like, I have a new idea. Can we talk about it? Can we do yeah. this? And like, you know, he's got like four kids right now to take care of. He's got a wife, he's got a business and somehow he manages to make time for me. So, you know, genuinely means a lot to me that you even have this time. So oh, I love it. And if I didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, exactly. You just got to do what you love doing. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, outside of The Bachelor and that whole route that you went, uh, I was going to tell you that, or I was going to ask you first, if there was a movie that was going to be made for you based on your life story, who would you want to play your character? Jake Gyllenhaal, because he looks like me. <laughs> That's. But, I mean... We both love Ryan Gosling. It'd be great if it was Ryan yeah. Gosling, but I think uh, I was thinking Jake Gyllenhaal, and for some reason, I feel like Henry Cavill would be a good one. Oh man, that guy's chiseled. Yeah, I think he's he's got a good salt and pepper thing going on too. Yeah, but who do you think Amy would, your wife, would have as her character? A younger Jennifer Connelly. Oh, I could see that for sure. Um. Yeah, I think she. My type, she's uh, current Jennifer Connolly is killing it too. And Top Gun, wow, I actually find older Jennifer Connolly more attractive. I do too, than younger Jennifer Connolly. I agree. I think it's just like I don't know, she just looks like you know how they always like say like men look better as they age and like the wrinkles give them character and stuff. Yeah. Like, I thought she looks great, like Top Gun, yeah, and Smoke show, yeah, it was a great movie overall, though. But, um, yeah, what was I gonna let's see. I had a couple of questions, but I feel Wait, like I want to know who whose cast is you in your movie. <laughs> but I had that question just now with one of my friends. Um, I mean, obviously Ryan Gosling would be ideal, but I think uh, you know ethnically it wouldn't make much sense. Oscar Isaac. Um, no, I really like. Um, He's got a good beard. You gotta have a good beard. Yeah, that would be great. You gotta have striking features. Oscar Isaac's been killing it lately. Um, who's the guy that? You know the drum movie on Amazon that just came out recently, Riz Ahmed. No, Riz Ahmed. Yeah, he's a he's a great actor. He's been in a couple movies. Um, one of my friends said the other guy from Lion is a brown actor. He's Lion. Yeah, you have to, to check that one out. Uh, that movie where he was with a tiger in a boat. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Life of Pi. Yeah, I yeah, feel like I'm pretty yeah, uh, pretty stuck in the brown actor realms. So I'd have to pick somebody there. I don't know, man. There's some, some pretty hand. I, I like Oscar Isaac. He, Oscar Isaac is a good one. I'll take that. Eye. You guys both have like striking eyes. I'll, pre- I'll take that, man. I appreciate you, it. I take that. But um, yeah. So, <clears throat> what else was I gonna bring up? I'll edit this part out. But yeah, no, I was um, 
curious in terms of, you know, your next path in dentistry, do you see yourself, we've talked about the entrepreneur route and what you want to, you know, we currently are trying to think about things we can do together professionally in that realm. And I was curious, is, is there a path you're currently seeing yourself in the next five years taking? Do you see yourself stepping out of dentistry in the next five years? Do you want to kind of continue to be in it until? Yeah, no, I love dentistry. And it, it, even though it would make better financial sense for me to be a CEO in a company, I can't. It's, it's what I know. It's what I love. And I also believe that if, if I get out of practicing dentistry, I'm just. Like, You're going to lose that. Yeah. Drive. yeah. I want to teach dentists. Yeah. So I think I'll get back into teaching again. Since having my daughter, I've kind of taken a break and COVID happened and they cut down traveling. Zoom teaching was the worst. So I just said, I'm going to take a break from that. Yeah. Do you think you'll go back into Invisalign or do you want to do something more hands on, like, you know, teaching at the schools or doing courses with course and all those? I won't teach at schools. I got this thing. I, no, not it's a lot school. of politics involved in the school. Too much I've politics, heard. yeah. And I just unless I know the school and it's a, like Bill Robbins teaches at UTSA. And yeah, I have so much respect for him. Maybe if they ever invited me, then I would go. I, yeah. I went to UT a couple times and did lectures, but it was always like a guest lecture kind right, of thing, like a pre dental kind of yeah. lecture thing. Yeah, I love that, and I love just being with people and talking about what I love. Um. But no, Invisalign's been fantastic to me, and they've given me a platform to talk about what I want. And really, my dream would be to do something with John Coyce, yeah, because of the, the level of respect I have for him. Yeah, it's been. I mean, that yeah. guy sounds like a beast. Like I can't imagine He's, how long he teaches his courses, and he does it multiple times. Yep, and they're not just like two-hour course like he'll stand up there for like hours right oh i mean it, the course is like five days and they're 10 hour lectures wow. all given by him that's nuts it's his endurance is amazing but it's also just how much evidence he packs into like and he updates that evidence yearly constantly. it's not like a fixed thing yeah and you got to go like to the symposium once a year to get the updates because you know evidence is constant and that's what i love about him is he understands science he's not pawning off some product on you sponsored by whoever it's like what does the evidence say and evidence changes mm -hmm. I mean, as new studies and longitudinal studies come up he'll change he'll say yeah we've been using this cement for many years but we're finding this is causing failure maybe the soft drink is breaking it down or you know for example chlorhexidine he's like chlorhexidine was the gold standard mouth rinse for perio for yeah 50 years not anymore john coyce has black labeled it he's wow. basically said you know, I don't offer it anymore because we have something that has the same benefits with no side effects. What is that one? It's dilute sodium hypochlorite. Oh, wow. Um, dilute bleach. So chlorhexidine is cytotoxic, and they've shown that. So if you rinse with it after taking out a tooth, it doesn't heal as fast. Wow. It does disinfect really, really well. But it also, uh, there's an allergic reaction. I mean, there's several people who had anaphylaxis to... So dilute sodium hypochlorite is better in that regard? Yeah, there's no, I mean, no one is, it's, you're basically swishing with pool water. Yeah. It tastes terrible. I know, and it doesn't sound like it would be the right option between the two, but that's yeah, amazing. And, you know, maybe the evidence will change. I do think that there could be something that happens in the enamel interface with something that's high in pH that, that could be that caustic. 
there is evidence coming out that maybe on enamel it may have a side effect that's not good. But when it comes to perio disease, P. gingivalis, the red complex bacteria that cause, you know, gum inflammation, it it does just as well as chlorhexidine. Yeah. The one thing I love about you, which I think is not common across dentists that I work with, I mean, it should be more, but I think with the amount of learning we do, what what drives you to keep wanting to learn more about it? Like what keeps you going with it? Because I feel like dentistry, unfortunately, is a field that can very much get you jaded very fast and mm-hmm. get you tired of the profession. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you ever experienced that at any point in your time? Because I've... I went through that period last year. I feel like I wasn't the best dentist I could be. I didn't show up to that office and for those people as best as I could. And it was because I was going through a lot of personal stuff at the same time. And I think, you know, I don't want to always use that as an excuse, but I did lose that love for dentistry. And that's why I had to leave the office. It was nothing personal, but Mm -hmm. I also wasn't giving them the best and they weren't the best environment for me either. So Mm -hmm. when you have experienced that, how did you keep it going and how have you kept it going since then good questions um yes dentistry and i think probably like most professions a lot of it is not fun Mm -hmm. and do people do get burnt out it's very taxing emotionally yeah but um uh, there's so much to it there's so much more to learn i think that's what keeps me coming back is that the second I get complacent, I'm like, oh, well, I could just get better at this one other thing or learn about this other thing. And really the most exciting thing that's happened to me in the last six years is teaching. And teaching has allowed me to, it's like, if I'm going to teach someone, I better know it really well. So I got to go learn more. And then as I'm learning more, I'm like, oh, dang, this is really cool. And yeah, um, it inspires me to continue growing there. I think the way to prevent burnout, A, recognize the signs of it, you know. A lot of young dentists, especially now, are getting their first jobs in corporate dentistry where there's, you know, pressure to produce and quotas and things like that, and they get lost in the task. Mm-hmm. I think you have to not allow that to happen. It either needs to be about the people connection because the people connection is the best part of dentistry, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, continual education, growing, knowing that you're never really going to master this. It's always going to be growth. There's always something else to learn. Right. Um, and you got to take breaks. You got to know your limits too. You know, yeah. like some people can do a 10 hour shift. Some people it's like, maybe you don't need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of that, too, when you, like, start to work so much that you lose your identity in the process and you forget what kind of dentist you are and you're just doing procedures just to do them and you're knocking out crowns and stuff without even thinking about the patient anymore. You're just focused on the tooth, and it's very easy to get lost in that. And I think every time I've left an office, I've had to... I've also like left a piece of myself in the office and I had to kind of relearn who I was after leaving. Just like a relationship, I think mm-hmm. it happens. Like you just basically are, are experiencing a different part of yourself at every office and you have to figure out what's right for you. Um, but yeah, I was curious about that because I felt this like burnout last year. And it's because I also, you know, on top of COVID, I had never taken any time off. And then I finally started to take some more time off last mm-hmm. year and I was realizing I was just like not happy where I was working. And it was a no, you know, personal offense to that place. It was just that 
you know, if it's just not the right fit, it's not the right fit, just like relationships. And um, I think, unfortunately, I have a lot of friends that work in dentistry now that are still working at those offices that they're not happy at, but they mm -hmm. think that that's the only option they have or they don't want to leave. That's that fear of like taking the next step. So, um, yeah, it's inspiring to see you doing what you're doing and still loving what you're doing because it is a very demanding profession in that regard. And to lose that passion can be very easy, especially in the social media world. I think we live in a world of constant comparison now yeah. too. So you go online, you see one dentist doing so well and just killing it. And again, just like everything on social media, you're seeing all the highlights of their dental career. You're not seeing yeah. the lowlights. Like you mentioning the eight jobs you worked at before, like nobody knew that. But they, it's it's good to know that kind of stuff because you just normalize that you've been through failures before you've gotten oh, yeah. your success. So um, yeah, that's an important thing. I think a lot of dentists need to realize and patients. I think a lot of patients also assume that the most successful dentist is just like been doing well his entire life. Mm -hmm. But he only got there from like, unfortunately, treating some patients poorly and learning from that. And now they're in a better place to know and understand what's better for them. So, yeah, I think you, know, you, you touched on a lot of important things there um, in social media and the comparison is the theft of joy. Right. And we're constantly doing that. That wasn't around in 2008. Yeah. I mean, it's... when I got out of school. I didn't feel inferior every day by looking at my phone. Yeah. So that was a big thing. Um, man, when it comes to your experiences in your job, I know you well enough now that I know that when you come into an office, you're not just giving them your dentistry. Like you will change the culture, environment, website, art on the walls, the music patients listen to. You imprint yourself in there. And a lot of corporate offices, they don't give a crap about that. Mm -hmm. And they're like, just produce, man. Like, <laughs> I don't care. But you pull on your heart. It's, it is like a relationship. Yeah. And, you know, I think with there are opportunities where people appreciate that as an associate. Unfortunately, the, the best place for that is when you have equity in it. Because then it's lasting. Right. You know, and you get to see the fruits of that labor. Yeah. Whereas if you don't have equity, then the fruits are received by the owner. Yeah. I think two books come to mind. I think The Gap in the Game, which I just read. A friend of mine recommended to St. Crawford about a year ago. And um, I read it. And it's about comparison. Mm -hmm. And the gain mindset is every day you think about all the things you learned and gained. And you are mindful and grateful for the environment you're in. The gap mindset is always trying to get somewhere else like i have to be better and so in your brain it's like the dopamine there's chemical reasons there's research on this but you're actually weakening yourself by always comparing yourself to a future self or striving for something else instead of just appreciating what you did that day mm. that's a good thing and then you know when it comes to the equity i think of uh, what's it to seem uh Nassim Talib, I think is his name. He wrote the Anti-Fragile book, but he also wrote um, Skin in the Game. Okay. And it's really about the uh, profound sense of ownership and pride you feel when you have skin in the game. Right. And as an associate, I think many associates, I try to create an environment where my associates feel they have skin in the game, even though they didn't have to put equity out. Yeah. 
but it's really important that you feel like you can impact change in your office and you get credit for the change you yeah, impacted. I 100% agree. I mean, I feel that all the time and we've talked about it. I think it's not only like, do you feel like you want to do more, but you feel more passionate about doing it because you know it reflects who you are because yeah. you now are part of that whole thing. So when people see that, you're like, well, that's a representation of me. Whereas when you're an associate or employee, you're like, this isn't a representation of me. It's a representation of who I work for. So I don't have to try that hard and I'll put in like 20% effort in that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, there is a little bit of that like bitterness where when you do it and they get praise or something for it, you're like, that was me. Like that I did me. that, but I'm not going to get any of that credit. Right. So there is a little bit of that and that's not always good for the dynamic of the profession. Um, but you brought up you know your books and i was going to ask like as a business owner and as an entrepreneur i've been on this like i know it's taken me 33 years to get here but i'm on this path now where i'm constantly trying to read and learn more mm -hmm. and i wanted to know what your resources are that you'd recommend for somebody like me or anybody that's just wanting to grow more as an entrepreneur and as a businessman like things that you felt have really impacted you in that kind of path of your life Pod yeah. podcast included yeah, well, man, there's so many things that have shaped my perspective on the business. I think prior to opening my practice, the most important book I read was E-Myth, which basically says that you can't be the technician, a manager, and an entrepreneur at once. You need to find and delegate those three specific tasks. And dentists fail at this the most because dentists are good dentists, and they come in and they try to manage a team, and they try to grow their business, and do dentistry at the same time. And I struggle with that a lot too, but you have to have people you trust with those skills. I think that's the most important book dental office, dental practices should read. It's called E-Myth? E-Myth. Okay. It's short, it's like 100 pages, but it, to the point. E-M-Y-T-H. Yeah, E-M-Y-T-H. Okay. The e, the entrepreneurial myth. Okay. Um, that's, that's the big one. Um, I read Slice of the Pie, which is do with how to manage people early on. It was very impactful. Anti-Fragile was one of the big ones that shaped my perspective on how I want to create my business. And, um, you know, dentistry is hard. It's, it's a robust business. Even in a down economy, dentists do well. But to create a business that actually thrives on days like today where you're shut down and you actually get stuff done, like I, in my anti-fragile brain i wouldn't be able to do this podcast with you today if it wasn't for the freeze that closes all our offices down right you know so who knows the impact this will have hopefully it's a positive one a few people but um you know you have to think like that like every bad bad thing that happens is an opportunity for you to grow right so that was a really good book and then for dentists, uh, the breakaway course, I don't know how much it's changed, but I took that course in 2011. And it just gives you a framework on how to open an office. Like you need to find this contractor, this attorney, boom, boom, boom. Do these things before you open your own de novo office. Really, really good. Um, today and now, I mean, most of the books I read are how to maintain and not collapse under the weight of all that I'm responsible for. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I read books on, uh, I really like Ryan Holiday and the Stoicism movement. I'm a big fan of Stoic so philosophy. Dope. Yeah. It's helped me through a lot, like in the last year. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a pretty st simple concept. Sometimes it can be very like 
cut and dry like mm -hmm. but i think it's necessary reminders about things but yeah i mean the concept of being tolerant of others and strict with yourself I, there's many tenets to the story yeah, marcus aurelius is like this i don't know how that guy Dude, it, it like yeah incredible you don't lose your mind no. when someone disappoints you and you're just like okay i gotta be strict to myself yeah. tolerant of others an Everybody. obstacle being a part of the path and everything yeah and you get accepting of the the bad things yeah so I do a lot of that. Um, I listen to Ryan Holiday and his, he's got daily meditations and they're really cool. Um, I love podcasts. I love learning from, you know, I, I really, there's this guy in Austin, his name's Tim Kennedy and he's ex Green Beret. I read his book, Scars and Stripes. And it's basically this concept that you need heroic men to protect and preserve life. I feel like one of my biggest anxieties is I have four kids. So yeah. I'm like, I mean, I 2020 when I felt like the world was going to collapse, you know, and I didn't have a job anymore because yeah. the government forced me to shut down. I yeah. was like, dude, I got to teach my kids how to survive. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so I, I've gone all survivalist like yeah. mode and, you know, I, you know, learn how to survive, protect myself, run to gunfire, you know, have you, seen, thing. have you seen yes, The Last of Us? This is completely... Dude, loved Last of oh Us. Oh my God. Played the game. Yeah. But the last episode, the third one was yeah. like, really Well, I was so thinking the first episode reminds me of you because like, you know, the father-son or the father-daughter kind of yeah. relationship. Like, you know, there's nothing that's stronger than that bond. Yeah. And yeah, the game is beautiful. Like even the ending, like, you know, the twist is just like you... It's amazing how they made you identify with and understand why he made that decision because you would do the same thing in that situation right and yeah. um yeah like the survivalist situation i was like that's totally robin like i could totally see you yeah doing man. that at the end totally and it's a weird cool passion too it's really interesting when you get into it yeah like, there's this whole world of mastery of yourself yeah and, there's youtube yeah. videos of these guys that do those things you know yeah. like create things out of nothing and live yeah. in the forest and whatnot so it's pretty cool um but yeah that's another thing i was going to bring up with people is Robin and I have an, a great relationship where I've learned a lot, not only with dentistry and stuff, but I think even with like politics and the way we discuss things, we don't have the same. Let's talk about politics. No, no. <laughs> we, oh, we battle. How you post something. That, that can like, be. Hey, did you ever think about this? Yeah. During the peak of 2020, obviously Trump is a president and I'm a brown Muslim guy. So I have some views that are a little bit different than others on that and i think the great thing was it was such a very it was like a high intensity moment where yeah. everybody was on edge everybody was unhappy everybody was frustrated and i was guilty of that too i was sharing a lot of stuff from just pure feeling instead of logic and i would get fight back from friends who were Trump Me. supporters or something but then <laughs> i would I'm not a huge no 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 but i would also get like yeah. you know robin messaging me with a different approach where he was like you know i don't agree with this but like i want to hear your like train of thought in it or hey like let's talk more about this and it was great because it never felt like any of the conversations were aggressive or heated they just yeah. felt like it was both of us trying to understand each other's logic and perspective and a lot of the times i respected his perspective and learned more from it and you know sometimes hopefully like i gave you my perspective and it made sense sometimes but yeah. um, well, at least I, you'd engage in the conversation yeah i mean i've i learned a lot to not write off things like that because i'm not 
I wasn't good at that before. Like there used to be times when I would just write people off. Like I was like, okay, you're a Trump supporter. Like you're racist and I don't want to talk to you again. But then I learned over time that there's people that don't necessarily support the person, but obviously like financially there are things that are beneficial in that regard. And there's a lot of stuff, you know, that are like, there's nothing that's like black and white. And I learned there's a lot of gray and everything. And it took me the quarantine and being alone and having to like really like invest time in learning more about things like that. That was great. And I think you taught me a lot of that in our relationship that you can have opposing views and completely different philosophies on things, but you can still get along and find a middle ground in all of that. And uh, I think you were one of the main proponents for that for me. And it's taught me a lot on how to communicate with friends that I don't agree with anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, like I used to approach people with a much more um, heated approach and automatically write people off. But now I try to be a little bit more discerning between what they're saying and what they actually mean. Mm. So that's been pretty great. Well, that's a profound thing. I appreciate that I've been able to yeah. do that. I Many people won't have those conversations. I mean, I have many left-leaning friends that if I even mention like... Gun rights or... Yeah, I mean, yeah. the Second Amendment to me is like the most important thing America has going for it. And yeah. I have a strong opinion about it. But I would love to sit with somebody who is anti-gun and have a conversation with them about why that is. And I, you know, get down to the core of it. Yeah, I think uh, the best way to move forward as a country and as an individual, like in your home. Yeah, I've enjoyed listening to like Lex Friedman on that kind of stuff, because I think he approaches everything in a very, um, you know, middle ground approach. Like even when Kanye has been having his kind of tirades and going crazy, that that interview is great because I think he still approached it from a very neutral stance. He didn't attack Kanye or jump at him even though he was he getting stood his ground which I was really impressed right with. and I think that's important lesson I learned in that too is like you know in spite of all that if you are disrespected it's important to still stand your ground and like stand right with your beliefs but still mm-hmm. be res- as respectful as you can because you can't let them drag you down to their level too mm-hmm. um so yeah I've been trying to be better about that and I you know appreciate you teaching me more about that in that regard. Cause I feel like if it wasn't for that relationship, I would have probably still been, I don't share that stuff anymore cause I don't see any benefit in it. Uh, I've seen a lot of. Yeah. I feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. Social media is not a good place to have political. Discussion. Yeah. I think there's enough negative stuff online. And I think the biggest focus I've had in social media is just to focus on the positivity. And we've talked about there's toxic positivity, but there's also just like general positivity. And if I can say something nice about somebody genuinely nice i'd rather do that than just like go on a tirade and talk you know complete shit about somebody that i don't like like it doesn't benefit anyone and if anything it causes more conflict and dispute than, and it just makes my day worse overall so yeah it's been a it's been an ongoing learning process and struggle so yeah yeah totally i still we have a mutual friend i don't know him very well but like, you post something, and I'm like, you just alienated half people. I have beliefs like this, and you just called me a racist. I yeah. I'm not a bigot. Yeah. But I, I do believe in the Second Amendment. So, yeah. like, you know, and you get in these conversations, but some people won't even have it. Yeah. I they'll think. They'll block you. They'll delete you. they like. I, I try to also empathize with that because I think it, it could also be their upbringing, you know? Like, considering yeah. their background, they may have experienced totally. a lot of hate and um, alienation because of who they are or how they've grown up to be. And I think they're used to that. And as a re- reactive mechanism, they react defensively to anything right. that seems like an attack or an infringement yeah. on them. So I also try to empathize with that too, because it's like true. 
I don't know. Like, I don't think it's like a perfect response, but I also don't think it's a bad response. I think it's, you know, it's, it's their defense mechanism. Yeah. And, and you got to give respect to people's boundaries. Right. And, uh, there's still great people like the mutual friend we have, I think is a great yeah. person. And I just think, you know, I've had to like, just realize every single human I meet is probably going to have a completely opposing view, but I, they're also going to have a lot of similar things that we share in common and yeah. have to focus more on those and appreciate those instead. So my, my brother's a therapist. And one thing you have, to, I mean, he's taught me too, is you can't try to fix people. Yeah. Like, especially if they didn't want to be fixed. Right. And I, you know, I slide in someone's DMS. It's usually cause they're a close friend and I'm like, are you sure you mean that? Yeah. Like, Let me just challenge this. No, I and I, I get enjoyment. I'm yeah. engaging and I was, I was sparring, but, um, no, I think that the fact that you're open to it, I mean, my brother who is a therapist also has told me that in order to move past certain things and trauma from you, you have to confront them. Right. And you can't just block out everyone with opposing views. You have to discuss it and get down into it and get yeah. dirty with the, the idea. And I, I just like that you're open to those. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's cool to see the other side of it because, you know, it's fun to like think a certain way and then completely be blasted from the opposing perspective and realize like, Oh, I was like completely wrong in that regard. Or like, I didn't even think about it in that way. And it's been great to learn that. Cause I mean, growing up in high school, I could probably say I was pretty homophobic just cause like I, you grow up in that environment. People call everybody left forward and like, you know, yeah. just disrespect that entire group. And now my best friend is gay and it's been so great to hear his perspective on, the community and growing up in that lifestyle. And yeah, it's one of those things, like if I wasn't open to meeting this person and talking to them, I would have never appreciated that and learned so much. And now like, I feel like a big part of my personality is because of him and that community, because it's like made me identify with like being more comfortable with my feminine side and all this other stuff. So yeah, it's been cool. But yeah, um, yeah I agree. I can't wait to meet your brother one day. He seems like a cool guy too. Yeah. He's a really cool guy. Yeah. My two brothers are both cool guys. Yeah. Well, uh, a lawyer, so yeah. You well, know, at least you get protected in case anything goes <laughs> down. No, he's a great lawyer. He's yeah. really good. Well, so what's your? Um, I guess I want to do another episode with you, and maybe yeah. we can focus more on things outside. I think the big thing I was excited about with this is learning about you know your dental route and just yeah. more in that business ownership. But I think next time we'll talk more about the nerdy stuff and that'll be more for us this is a one for them one for us situation yeah i'll talk music and i gotta get polished up on the music stuff man yeah, i gotta we'll, get out there and... yeah we uh sometimes we'll hang out and we'll listen to records together but we haven't done that in a while so yeah. we'll have to um but honestly it was such a pleasure having you on here i'm super honored to know you and i can't wait to have you again uh before we leave though do you have any questions or anything that you had for me usually i try to end it with like giving the guess the chance to ask me anything ask a question or oh man just any curiosities you might have had that. should have saw that coming hmm you know only thing that's coming to mind right now is i gotta have you out to the ranch and hang out with amy and the kids and i'd love that yeah go fishing and shooting and all that go stuff. Hunting, hunting hogs and stuff get you some cowboy boots yeah i'm still looking for some these are the i wore these boots in your honor today because i was like i know your boot guy. i didn't know we both gonna wear boots yeah got my red wings i love these i boots. used to hate boots this really? is I, no i when i was a californian coming to texas i thought the cowboy, cowboy boots culture was the worst the dumbest thing I've ever yeah seen. i grew up in fresno which is like a rodeo town yeah. but 
I thought it was dumb. No, boots are awesome. And they're so awesome. I've wanted a pair for the longest time, but it's one of those things like, because boots can last the rest of your life. So I want to make yeah. sure whatever I get is like my pair, you know, yeah. like it like has that connection to you. Totally. So yeah, I can't wait to go boot shopping with you. Yeah, I'll get some boots. Um, but yeah, um, I am curious when you initially met me did you have like any first impressions or anything or were you just like oh this is exactly like what i expected because i oh, feel like yeah. my instagram personality and yeah are completely different i think you hear it a lot yeah, yeah. your instagram persona and your in-person persona are yeah. different okay and um i remember thinking i mean when i hadn't met you i was like dude this guy's one of the most creative guys he's gonna be such a great storyteller for our profession i just can't wait to and i still believe all that is true thank you i appreciate that but it's so cool to see that this very loud, very creative person on the internet, off the internet is a very empathetic, maybe introverted, maybe too strong to say, but you know, you are a thoughtful, kind of quieter person. And um, it's, I, I was surprised by that. I remember when I first met you, it's been a couple of years now, but I was like, he is way more introverted than I thought he would. Be. Yeah, I yeah. think, yeah, it's a very common response. And yeah. most of my friends will even be like, man, I feel like I have to like talk softer when I'm around you and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, sorry. It's just, but yeah, I think a lot of creatives are like that. I think a lot of us yeah. is expressed through the mediums, which is like definitely for me, um, which I love because I feel like I've had a lot of like stuff to like really let out and Instagram and all this stuff is really, given me that and it's helped me mentally too and i'm sure dentistry is like that for you like you get to like really put a lot of yourself out there with your profession so it's beautiful i yeah i'm i'm very thankful we're in the time around i think you've got a lot of powerful and beautiful things to say and get out there and i i just am very excited to be alongside and supporting thanks man these endeavors i take so. it as like an accountability thing it's like nice to like hear that for me because it reinforces me wanting to do these things so it means a lot to me but anyways i just want to say again thank you for being who you are thanks for being on this podcast and uh, we're at one hour and 30 minutes it was a solid talk and uh, i want to tell you guys thank you for listening uh if you guys have any questions for robin do you want to share your um instagram and forest yeah. family info for people for sure um i have three instagram handles but Robin Bethel or Dr. Robin Bethel is uh, my private one. And then Blue Door Dental Design is Blue Door and Forest Family Dentist is Forest Family. Um, my email address is just my name dot, at gmail.com. So Robin Bethel at gmail.com. And I'll share this all on the info. So if you guys have any questions for him, any curiosities, Robin is an amazing dude. Uh, I'm sure he's happy to respond to any yeah. questions you might have about dentistry, business ownership, entrepreneurial stuff. Uh, just feel free to reach out to him or let me know if you have any questions for him. I can save them for the next uh, interview that we will definitely have yeah. in a couple of awesome. months. But um, anyways, thanks for hanging out, guys. And um, this is Hamza. Take care.